Morena Church, it's so good to be with you. I have been loving my time here. I'm part of the city campus, but I actually live up in Silverdale. So, you know, I'm a little bit out of my neck of the woods today. And it is just really, really cool to have the opportunity to see what God is doing in this part of the Elam family. And I love that Darcy won and that the trees are up because in my house... It's definitely creeping forward each time how early Christmas starts to get decorated. We are very firmly a 1st of December real Christmas tree family, but everything else is up. And one of my daughters, um, I'm a mum to four kids who range from 17 to 28, and my 14-year-old still loves to hang out with me and watch Christmas movies. So we have been inching forward. Normally it's the whole month of December we watch Hallmark, Now it's officially November as well. Um, So we are taking great delight in cheesy Christmas movies, much to the disgust of my husband and one of our other children, who really doesn't like Christmas that much. But I want to gauge the temperature in here. Who loves Christmas? Yeah, pretty, maybe not so many as in the first service. Who's ready for Christmas? Yeah, definitely less hands. Who feels a little bit tired at the thought of this time of year, if they're honest? Yeah, tired in general? You know, I was saying to the first service, when I ask people at the moment, how are you? Tired is often the response that I'm getting at the moment. And I think we kind of need to pat ourselves on the back because this is the first full year that we've all had to show up for in quite a while, you know? No 24-hour pyjama parties, no binging on Netflix for days on end because you're shut in your house. We've actually had to front up and go to work and go to school and do the things day after day after day. And I don't know about everybody else, but in my house, we are definitely tired. But I think there's something more that's happening in general as we look around the world. There's not just a physical weariness there's an internal weariness. Because every time, I would say open the paper, but I don't know about you, I open the online news. It just feels like things on your feed and things in the headline are screaming doom and gloom and reasons to despair and reasons to worry. And as I was praying about what the Lord wanted me to share today, the line of a Christmas carol kept coming to mind I had planned to preach something about donkeys. You'll have to be hanging in suspense. Maybe I'll get to come back another time and talk to you about donkeys. But I kept having this line, a weary world rejoices. And I just knew that the Lord wanted me to speak to you about joy this morning about the reasons why, as the people of God, we can not only just carry joy, but actually release joy. Because Christmas is not meant to be another reason to feel tired and weary. It's meant to be the antidote to the weariness that the world feels. And I just want to read you the first verse of that carol. And it says, O holy night, the stars are shining brightly. It is the night of our dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. 
For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. At the end of the Old Testament, that new and glorious morn that the carol writer was thinking of was prophesied. In Malachi 4, 6, it says, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and you will leap like calves released from the stall. I don't know about you, but to me, that is a picture of joy, a new day dawning, the sun is rising, there's healing, and if you've ever seen calves frolicking in a field, that is a joyful scene. Malachi was speaking to a people who'd just been released from exile, and they had come back home to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. It lay in ruins. They had to rebuild the temple. They had to rebuild their homes. They had to rebuild the city walls. They were struggling. They were weary. Their resources were scarce. And Malachi comes, and he speaks this word of hope to them. He says, a new day is dawning, and you're going to feel joy again. You're going to experience healing. And you know what? Followed from that, 400 years of silence. This is what the Old Testament closes on. And after that word of prophecy, there are no angelic visitations. There are no more prophets. There's just seemingly silence, like God has forgotten them. And I think they must have felt a little bit like the sun was setting on them. Not dawning, setting. And as we come into the Christmas story, as we begin to unpack when that new and glorious morn finally arrived, we encounter a people who are weary too. And they're looking around them and Life does not look how they expected or hoped. They've not just been waiting 400 years. They've been waiting thousands of years for the promised Messiah. And they find themselves still under enemy occupation. And not only that, not only is an enemy controlling the promised land... But legalism has crept into their worship and so many rules and regulations that God had never given them have come into the temple. And so even their act of worship feels wearisome and burdensome. This is a tired people. But a new day is about to dawn for them. And friends, a new day has already dawned for us if we will have eyes to see it and hearts that will understand it. So what we are going to do in the time that we have this morning is we are going to turn to Luke's Gospel. So if you've got your Bible or your Bible app, I would love it if you would go there with me. And we are going to trace the joy and the rejoicing throughout this time when this new and glorious morn had come. So as you get yourselves ready, I am just going to pray quickly. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that it is truth that we can build our lives upon. And Father, we just want to come and present ourselves this morning. You know where we are each at. As Shemaine has already said this morning, you know the chaos that might be happening around us. You see the chaos of this world how it lies like the carol is sung in sin and error pining. 
But we thank you that you bring a message of hope and you bring a message of joy. And so we posture ourselves to receive that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke's gospel, he opens by saying this in the first four verses. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, were the who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The message paraphrase puts that verse, so that you might know without a shadow of doubt the reliability of the things that you have been taught. Luke, unlike the other gospel writers, chose to start his work with a prologue. These four verses that we've just read. When an ancient writer did this, it was a mark of quality. It was indicating just how serious what they were writing about was. So theologians and historians would use one to kind of signal to the audience, you need to pay attention because what I'm writing about is the real deal. All of Luke's gospel, apart from these four verses, are written in what was called common Greek. But these four verses are one carefully crafted sentence in what was known as literary classical Greek. Now that might seem like Bible trivia, but what that gives us is confidence. Luke wanted you and I to be confident that what we're about to read is accurate reliable, it is true. And this is what I want to say to you this morning. Santa might combine folklore and fantasy, but Jesus is all truth. And as we begin to read about angels popping up and barren woman conceiving late in life, virgins conceiving by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we begin to notice these miracles happening, Luke wants us to be confident that these are not myths, but these are the reality of life when God is with us and working amongst us. So as we begin to dive into the reasons that we have to rejoice, I want you to be confident this is truth that you can build your life upon. And the first characters that we are going to meet this morning are a couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were a priestly couple. Zechariah served as a priest and Elizabeth was descended from priests. And God himself described them as being righteous and upright. Who knows that if God says that somebody's pretty good, they've got to be like really good. And he says that they blamelessly followed all the commands that were given to them. And it's really important, this description of them, because soon after, Luke announces that this couple have a problem. And what he's wanting the reader to understand is they don't have a problem because they're sinful. God has already said they are righteous. But like Israel, who's had a 400-year silence, this couple have been walking through a personal silence of unanswered prayer. Elizabeth, we're told, was barren and unable to conceive. 
And in her time and her culture, that was a source of shame and disgrace. And you better believe that the people would have whispered what skeletons were in her closet. And Luke is making it really clear to us. She has done nothing wrong. She is blameless in God's eyes. So this couple have gone decades with an unanswered prayer, with a personal silence, wrestling, God, what are you doing in our lives? And when we meet them, it's Zachariah's turn to go and offer the incense in the temple. And what you need to understand is that this was like the pinnacle of his career. A priest typically only got to do this once in their lifetime. There were so many priests, so many divisions, and lots would be drawn. And Zachariah's turn had finally come up. And it might look like it was just chance that the lot got drawn and it was his turn. But he was about to step into a divine orchestration of events. And this is where we meet him. I'm picking up in verse 11. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Now his name means God has remembered. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has remembered. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy, there's our first joy, and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Luke then goes on to fill us into how this child John is going to start to fulfill some of the things that were prophesied at the end of Malachi. After Malachi prophesied this new dawning, he said that God would send somebody ahead, somebody who would prepare the hearts of the people, turn the hearts of the children to the father and the fathers to the children. And Gabriel's saying, that one, it's your son. He's the one who's going to get the people ready for the saviour that we've all been waiting for. Your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. But who knows, if you have waited a really long time to see something change in your life, you don't always believe it. There's a sense of disillusionment that can creep in. And we see this in Zechariah, like he says to the angel, how? How can I be sure after all this waiting that this thing I've desired more than anything else is finally going to happen? And this is the angel's response. He says, I am Gabriel, almost like that in and of itself should be enough for you. You know who Gabriel is. You know how important he is amongst the angels. It's a done deal. But he goes on to say, I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. God had not forgotten Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. They had not gone unheard. He remembered them. They simply awaited their proper time. 
Now, throughout Scripture, there is this theme of the proper time. Sometimes it appears as the set time, the appointed time, the fullness of time. But what it tells us is that God not only has a plan, but he has a timetable. And I don't know about you, but sometimes his timetable frustrates me. I would like him to move some things up. But here's what I've learned. His proper time is always the most joyful time. And what we see happening here in a moment of time is the meta-narrative of Scripture. So by that I mean the big overarching story, God's redemptive plan to reconcile mankind to himself. We see the meta-narrative and somebody's personal narrative colliding. And they are coming together. You know, God could have answered Zechariah's prayer at any point in time. He could have given him any child. But the proper time meant a child who helped fulfill the big picture story. When I first began to put this message together, I was going to tell you that the first reason you could rejoice was an answered prayer. But I really felt, as I was getting ready to send everything through to Adam, that the Lord said, no, 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 it's the proper time. So if you are filling in notes, the first thing that you get to rejoice in today is the proper time. Because the thing about the proper time is whether you are in a season of answered prayer or whether you are in a season of delay, you get to rejoice. Because his proper time is the fruitful time. It is the right time. And I could tell you testimony after testimony this morning from my own journey of how I have despised delay at times. And then down the track when God has fulfilled his word to me, I've gone, oh wow, that is so much better than I would have given myself. I am so much more ready for what it is that you've entrusted to me than I would have been in another season. Your proper time is the right time, and your proper time enables and invites each one of us to participate in his story. I want to encourage you today, often our frustration in times of delay as we're waiting for God to fulfill our desires and fulfill the things he's promised us, is we are focused on our perspective. But your story is entwined with my story, and my story is entwined with your story, and all of them as God's people are wrapped up into his story. And so sometimes delay is about what he needs to outwork in us, and sometimes our story is connected to somebody we haven't even met yet, and God needs to orchestrate timing for us both to be ready. But you can find joy if you will trust in his proper time. And that's what happened for Zechariah. When his son was finally born and he was able to speak again, he goes into this incredible prophetic song. And he says this, he says, through the, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah had this moment of revelation where he realized that his life was caught up in something so much bigger and he rejoiced because of it. So the first reason that you get to rejoice today is the proper time of God is trustworthy. 
as we continue our story, the next time that these words joy and rejoicing come up is with Mary. It's not when Mary encounters Gabriel for herself. So there, after Gabriel has spoken to Zechariah and Elizabeth, then he moves on and he visits Mary, the young virgin girl in an unlikely off-the-grid town to be chosen to be the Messiah. And he says to her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in power and you are going to conceive the Savior of the world. And in the early stage of her pregnancy, she goes to stay with her cousin, Elizabeth. See, these stories are all entwined and connected. Nothing is random and how God works. And she spends some time, as was common in the first trimester, scripture would be read over her in that first trimester. And she goes to her cousin, who's further along in her pregnancy, to spend this time tucked away with Elizabeth. And in verse 41 of chapter 1, we pick up and it says this, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This child, John, that Elizabeth is carrying, when Jesus comes near to him, when he recognizes his Savior's presence, he leaps with joy. We get to rejoice in his presence. Matthew's account of the Christmas story says that Jesus, one of his names would be Emmanuel, God with us. And if we want to keep talking about that meta-narrative from Genesis through to Revelation, we see a story told of a God who wants to be with us. And we get to rejoice in the incredible truth that not only is God with us, he is within us. There is nowhere that we can go that we can escape his presence because we carry his presence with us. But it's more than like an intellectual, like I get to be happy because God's with me. Psalm 1611 tells us that God makes known to us the paths of life, that he fills us with joy in his presence. Well, one translation says, in your presence is fullness of joy. When you go into God's presence, joy is what naturally overflows. Did you know your joy matters to Jesus? As he was preparing to go to the cross, three times he prayed and declared that not only would his joy be in us, but that it would be complete to the full measure. And I want to say to you this Christmas, if you feel weary, You need to cultivate time in the presence of Jesus. Because just like John leapt for joy in the presence of his Savior, when we go and be with Jesus, joy is what 
overflows. Joy is the natural byproduct of being in the presence of God. And like I said, you don't need to go searching out for that presence. You don't need to travel great distance to go and worship in a particular place. You, if you are a believer this morning, you carry the Spirit of God Himself in all its power and glory. Do you know that the same word used for how the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary is the same word used in Acts when it says that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in power? When we receive Jesus and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, our lives are overshadowed and filled with the very presence of God Himself. I don't know about you, but the fact that I get to carry the Shekinah glory of God day in, day out, not only fills me with awe, it fills me with great joy. And the very reason that we get to carry the presence of God is because Jesus came and he took away our disgrace and he showed us the favor of God. What we remember more than anything at Christmas is a God who draws near and tangibly demonstrates his love and his favor towards us. You know, when Elizabeth fell pregnant, that was her exclamation. Essentially, God has been so kind to me. He has removed my disgrace from me and shown me his favor. But I want to say this today, the favor of God is not just for the upright and the blameless who are already reconciled to him. It's not just for those who already love him. It's for all people. In Luke chapter 2, we meet another group of people who find themselves rejoicing in this new day that is dawning. We meet the shepherds. In verse 8, we're told that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, you have to understand this. Being in the outer fields was very deliberate because shepherds were considered unclean. Their work was considered unclean. They would come into contact with parasites and carcasses that made them ceremonially unclean and they couldn't go into the temple unless they first went through a cleansing ceremony. And their work made it really hard for them to do that because they couldn't just leave the sheep. They had to keep watching over them. And so because of that, it was hard for them to go and worship. And the people kept their distance because they didn't want to become unclean by virtue of their contact with a shepherd. The Egyptians went so far to say that shepherds were detestable. It's in Genesis 36. So they were like, we might just think, oh, cool, they were shepherds. But they were like really low in society's social ranking at that point in time. And God comes and he shows his favor to these people, to these men, and they are the first group of people that the birth of Jesus is announced to. In verse 9 we read, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just the ones who God says are upright and blameless, but for the ones who feel on the outskirts, who feel marginalized, who feel dirty and unclean and unworthy. I bring good news for them as well. 
Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. The final reason that we get to rejoice this Christmas is in his promised salvation. The Israelites were looking for a new king to swoop in and to set them free from the Romans. But that wasn't the kind of deliverance, the kind of salvation that God had in mind. Matthew says that he will be called Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. God's heart, first and foremost, and still today, is to set us free from the internal prisons. To set us free from the things that bind and block and limit the abundant life that he intended us to know as his children. And Jesus came first to deal with the issue of the heart, to set people free so that they could be transformed and know the peace of God and then release that to a world who is pining to know the joy and the hope that we carry. You know, when God says, my peace rests on you, he's essentially saying, my wholeness. Shalom is more than just a feeling. It is peace in our relationship with God. It is peace in our relationships with one another. It's peace in our bodies. It's peace in our minds. It's peace in our finances. In other words, when we are made right with God, it is meant to transform every aspect of who we are. We are meant to be made whole. And that's God's invitation to you and I this morning, that we would receive his favor that we would let him be our saviour. And you know, maybe this morning, you need to let him do that for the very first time. You have never received Jesus. You've never said, Jesus, I need you. I believe that you are the son of God. Come into my life. If that's you, I want to encourage you with what Mary said. She said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. If you have never received Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you. He is and always has been and always will be mindful of you. And he cares deeply about your wholeness.